0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Good morning to all of you. It's so great to see you. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter number 7. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, electronically or printed version. You can turn in the one under the chair in front of you to page five, and you would find yourself parked right at Matthew chapter seven. Now, the Bible that you hold, be it a printed copy or an electronic copy, is a treasure map. I hope we realize that. It is a place where eternal life can be found. It is a place where abundant life can be found. And that's why I'm so excited. Anytime we have an opportunity, and I have an opportunity to lead us in opening this book and seeing what God has to say for us. And we're going to do that in just a few moments, talk a little more about the passage before us today. But before we actually go there, I want to talk a little bit about something that most of us are aware of in our culture, and that is there are some common eating disorders that are out there. One of them is called anorexia. Most of us have heard of that. When someone has that eating disorder, they are seeking to avoid food. They have an aversion to food, and they are basically starving themselves to death. And then there's another eating disorder that exists out there, and that is bulimia. It's different. With bulimia, you eat, but rather than digesting the food and and processing the food, uh, it is purged out of our system and it has a highly adverse effect on one's body by doing that. Now those two eating disorders which exist in our world and maybe some of us have struggled with them or you know somebody who has, they're just very devastating. But I believe they are a vivid picture of some spiritual disorders that exist in our world. For example... Spiritual anorexia is very prominent in our culture. In spiritual anorexia, there is an avoiding of the Word of God. There is an aversion to the Word of God. In Amos 8.11, Amos said there would be an era coming when there would be a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And that's why I'm really just so thrilled that you desire to be here today at Wildwood to hear the word of the Lord. You know, Peter said in John 6, 68 to Jesus, you have words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus in Matthew 4, 4 said, man does not live, he doesn't exist on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. His Word leads us to eternal life, and His Word leads us to abundant life. And our culture at large is really suffering from spiritual anorexia. The culture, just really, in a growing sense, has very little sense of an appetite for the Word of God. You know, because of the American spirit, we're independent, we're self sufficient. And more and more people today are saying, Well, don't tell me how to live my life. And this spiritual anorexia is prominent. I don't need to tell you that. It's prominent in our culture, but it's also present in many of our churches. Whenever I have an opportunity to speak at Family Life's Weekend to remember Marriage Getaway, before we let the group go at the end of the weekend, I always take some time to share with them. I say to them, I don't care what denomination or church you may attend, but if you are not going to a church where on Sunday morning they open up the Bible, they talk about what it says and what it teaches, and then they talk about how that applies to your life, if you're not going to that kind of a church, you're going to the wrong church. And so we have that kind of an issue some in the churches of America. We pray that never becomes an issue at Wildwood. But there's a second spiritual disorder, and we might call that spiritual bulimia. And this is actually more common. This is where we hear God's word, we listen to God's word, but we don't really digest it. We hear what it says, but there's a failure to apply it, a failure to translate it into action in our life, a failure to integrate it into our practice. And I believe it's this second spiritual disorder that Jesus addresses in the verses we have before us today, in the final caution he gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want you to know our aim as we get together today is not to discourage anyone. It's not to distress anybody's spirit. We, we want to be encouraging. We want to be enlightening. We want to awaken us to anything that God wants us to be alerted to. And so, I have been praying for multiple days, including multiple times even this morning, that the Holy Spirit would, would just nudge us, maybe poke us or, or prick our heart, uh, pray that He would be opening our eyes to anything we may be overlooking. So before we actually get there, let's just take a moment to pray. Father, as we come and we are going to open up the Word of God today, we would pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work. If we need to be nudged, if we need to be poked, that He would do that. And that you would open our eyes to anything that we maybe need to see in a fresh way today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're actually going to be looking at Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. I want to read those verses, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read them. Verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, as we look at these verses today, we're going to see two things. First of all, we're going to see Jesus' final caution in verses 24 to 27, and then we're going to see the people's reaction in verses 28 to 29. But just to give you a little bit of a context for all of this, Uh, Jesus is concluding this lengthy message called the Sermon on the Mount. And as he is doing that, he is giving a series of cautions. And two weeks ago, we saw that the first caution in verses 13 and 14 was a caution about entrance into the kingdom. Then we saw in verses 15 to 20 a caution about false prophets. And then the third caution in 21 to 23 about self-deception. Now, in verses 24 to 27, we come to his... Final caution. And let me just summarize what Jesus teaches really here. He says there's two ways to respond to his words. One is to put them into practice, to incorporate them into our life, and he says that's the wise choice. The other way to respond to Jesus' words is to hear, but to really ignore them. To be aware, but to fail to act on them. And he says that response is the foolish choice. So in verses 24 to 27, we have two responses. And then we have two illustrations that Jesus gives. And in each of these illustrations, there's a substructure of a house. And then there's an outcome. So let's take a closer look at it. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, you know, being a hearer is a good first step. It's just good to have a Bible. It is good to open your Bible. It is good to read your Bible. It is good to study your Bible. It's just good that you're here on a Sunday. You know, you're not out on the golf course, you're not home in bed, you're... You're not out at the lake. You're not down at the casino. See, those are the places on a Sunday where the spiritual anorexics can be located. So we're just glad that you're here. Everyone here, being here is a good first step, but that's not all. Notice verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine, and then what does it say? And acts on them. That's the new American standard. Everyone who hears these words of mine ESV, and does them. Everyone who hears these words of mine, NIV, and puts them into practice. He says those people can be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's interesting to me that Jesus uses these illustrations. He grew up in a carpenter's home, right? Makes me wonder if he didn't actually see a real-life illustration of these two different types of constructions that go on. You know, much of the area around Israel is is basically a sandy desert area. And if you were to just walk through it, it it sort of looks like you could just build anywhere. But he says, a wise man is one who chose to build his house on the rock. If you go to the parallel passage to this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 48, it says, the wise man dug deep And he put his substructure connected to the rock. And what ends up happening? Well, it says, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. You know, uh, that area of the world also has very limited rainfall, and... uh, Because of, you know, we have places like that in the United States. So when rain does fall, it can cause a a flash flood, and suddenly there can be this torrent of water. You know, when we lived in, in Dallas, Texas for five years, we lived in the Cassaview area, which is over by White Rock Lake, for those of you who would know, and we lived on Cassaview Avenue. And if you walked out of our house, you would see Cassaview, that street was relatively flat. It looked flat to me. And I remember there was this one particular time when suddenly there was this rather strong rainstorm that came, and you go out in the front, and and you see the whole street is full of rushing water up over the curbs, I don't know, maybe 10 inches deep. And where it came from, I have no idea. And where it was going to, I have no idea, but it was like a canal that had a torrent of water going down through it. That's the kind of a picture he's talking about here. The man who built his house on the rock, you have this storm that comes and it slams against the house, yet it doesn't fall because it has been built on the rock. Then there's a second response, verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, ESV, does not do them, NIV, does not put them into practice can be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Again, in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6 and verse 49, it says there that he just built his house directly on the ground, just on the ground. And what ends up happening? Well, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, as we go through a passage like this, there's a key question that must be answered, and that question is, in this account, and this caution by Jesus, what is the rock? What is the rock? Some would say, "Well, I mean, the rock is God." In Psalm 18:2, it says, "The Lord is my rock, and indeed He is." But is that the meaning of the rock in this passage? Some would say, well, the rock is the Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, it talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and we build our house on the chief cornerstone. Is that what the rock is in this passage? I actually think there's a better way to understand the rock. Look again at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, the one who hears and acts upon what I say is like a wise man who builds on the rock. In verse 26, you have someone who hears and does not act on them, and they build their house on no rock. What's the difference in the two situations? Here's what I think the rock is. The rock in this passage is putting Jesus' words into practice. That's the difference between the two. The building of the house is just an illustration. The rock is putting Jesus' words into practice. In other words, the idea of what Jesus is communicating to you and to me is in the illustration is this. A foundation is of no benefit unless it's on the rock. That's the illustration. The point he is making is that truth is of no benefit unless we put it into practice. What I really believe Jesus is doing is out to correct the spiritual disorder of bulimia, where we're just taking in information about the Bible. We begin to stuff our minds with the Bible, but we really don't digest it. We really don't process it. And and what Jesus is teaching here is something that he emphasized over and over and over again. For example, in the upper room with the disciples in John 13, 17, he says this, if you know these things, you are blessed. What does it go on to say? If you do them. It's the same idea. And another passage I want to direct your attention to is one that's often overlooked. In fact, I've I've rarely ever heard anyone even talk about it, but it's fascinating to me. In Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. And here's what's happening. In, In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching. And in verse 27, it says this. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice, and she shouted out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, just stop right there. What do you think Jesus' response to that was? It's very interesting. Next verse, Jesus replied, and he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God, and what does he say? And observe it. Those are the ones who are blessed. And by the way, when it's talking about being blessed by hearing the word of God and doing the word of God and putting it into practice, it doesn't mean that we have a smooth life with no trouble whatsoever in our life. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in my life. It doesn't work that way in your life. That's not what he means by being blessed He's being the blessing comes, and that God is at work in our life. And we experience his blessing even in the midst of difficulty when we hear his word and we do it. John, one of the closest disciples to Jesus in 1 John 2:5, wrote this: whoever keeps his word in him or her, the love of God is perfected. We all want to have the love of God perfected and matured in our life. How does that happen? Whoever keeps his word, he says. Not only did Jesus teach this and and John teach this, but this is taught elsewhere in the book of James. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter number 1, and we're going to look at verses 22 to 24. Remember, James is the Lord's brother, the half-brother, who eventually believed in Christ, but certainly had a sense of what his brother was concerned about. And so he writes to us and expands on this same theme in James 1. Look at James 1, verse 22. By the way, you can look at the surrounding verses. There's a lot of information here. I'm going to just jump in the middle of this. Verse 22, "...prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves." For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. You know, now I get a big kick out of little boys. I get a kick out of boys, especially BG boys. That means before Girls. Because just boys are really boys before girls. Then they begin to have to change a little bit. You know, I had one son and and three daughters, but I have the privilege now of having four grandsons, and sometimes, you know, they will spend the night at our house. And you know how boys are BG. It's like, you know, one of them goes down for bed, and they wake up in the morning, and they kind of come walking out, and you see this sort of white thing, kind of this white stain on the side of their mouth, you know, where they were just sort of slobbering a little bit, you know, and it kind of dried there. And, you know, what, what do you say to them? You say, hey, you got some white stuff there. Go in the bathroom, you know, and take care of that. And, and, and boys, BG boys, you know what they tend to do? They tend to go in, they look in the mirror. Yeah, I see that. Kind of looks sort of cool. I wonder if I could do that on the other side, kind of a matching thing working. And then they'll, they'll, they'll look at that, and then they'll turn around, and they'll walk out of the bathroom. Fifteen minutes later, you see him, and it's still got the white thing on the side here. And you're going, oh, time out. You know, you, you go back to the bathroom and get that taken care. That's the principle he's talking about, that there's, there's an opportunity for us to actually look at the Word of God as kind of a reflection, and we see, yeah, I, I see that. There's something I, I should do. But then we have this tendency to just walk away from it and not act on it. Look at verse 25 in James 1. There's a real contrast. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word of God, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be, what does it say? Blessed in what he does. There we have it again. Blessed. Connected with hearing the word of God and doing the word of God. Interesting. Verbal connection here and verbal communication in verse 25 it talks about one who looks intently at the perfect law. That's talking about the Word of God. Uh, this, this verbal form that means looking intently at really comes from a term that means to bend over, you know, to, to peer closely at something. Like if there was a ant, big really active anthill here, you know, and I'm bending down and I'm just, I'm looking at it really closely, peering at it, looking at it intently, kind of studying it. And, and, and so that's the picture But what does that mean for you and me in a practical, everyday way? I mean, mean, how do we look intently at his word? What does it really mean? I mean, how do you do that? He says that's important to do, but how do we do that? And I think this is where the M word comes into play. You know, uh, the M word is repeated multiple times in Scripture But I find it is rarely discussed in Christian circles. But the M word is very important when it comes to looking intently at his word. What do I mean by that? What is the M word? The M word is the word meditation. That's one way that we can look intently. And often when we think of meditation, you know, in our world today, we think of some sort of Middle Eastern or Far Eastern notion, you know, where you kind of sit there, you know, and you're kind of emptying your brain and letting it drain out of your ears of everything. That's not what the biblical sense of meditation is. Let me give you my definition for meditation. Here it is. Meditation is pondering the ramifications of what the Word says to me. That's biblical Meditation, pondering the ramification of what the Word says to me. In Psalm 1, it says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, what does it say? He meditates day and night. He or she is pondering the ramifications of what the Word says to them, and then you have the blessing. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season. Pondering the ramifications of what the word says to me, the psalmist says in Psalm one nineteen fifteen, "I will what meditate on your precepts, your truth, God. I'm going to ponder the ramifications of what it says to me." Psalm 119.99, your testimonies are my meditation. That's what I ponder the ramifications of as it relates to my life. And then, classic verse, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but what should you do? You shall meditate on it day and night, pondering the ramifications of what the Word says To me, why do we do that? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. That's how we get there. And then comes the blessing. For then you will make your way prosperous and have success. I remember when someone first instructed me by saying, Hearing alone never changed anyone. And it's so true. Hearing alone never changed anyone. And what Jesus is really saying to us, men and women, is that our hearing needs to result in heeding. It's more than hearing, it needs to move to heeding. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, too many Christians mark their Bibles, but their Bibles don't mark them. How true it is that we, you know, write a little note there. Yeah, that's very interesting. We can mark our Bible, but is our Bible really marking us? Because truth is designed to be translated into action. Truth is designed to be integrated into our practice in our life. Truth is designed to be incarnated into our life. And here's what I believe. I believe this caution that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 7 is a caution that is especially pertinent for those of us who have exposure to God's truth. Because I find in my life it's very easy to mistake Bible knowledge for spiritual obedience. It's it's very easy to equate hearing truth with true spirituality. I remember it was years ago, um, there was a Sunday morning group who met every Sunday morning in room one downstairs. Many of you have been down to room one. And and I remember this one particular time I was down there on a fairly regular basis and there was this new couple who came to Wildwood, a little older guy and and his wife. And uh, I was just so impressed when when I heard the way he intersected with the class You know, occasionally he would throw out a question that was just help elicit further depth in the conversation. Or if the group sort of got a little high-centered on something, he would just speak up with some biblical perspective. And I was so impressed, I thought, man, this is the kind of a couple who God could use to lead spiritually at Wildwood. A few days later, his wife came and met me in my office And she said, I want to tell you a little bit about us. She said, my husband's a pastor. He's actually been the pastor of four churches. But in every church he's ever been in, there's always been rumors about his inappropriate interaction with women. In fact, as it surfaced in the first church, we turned and we went to the second church. And then it surfaced there and we went to the third church. And then it surfaced there and we went to the fourth church. And at the fourth church, actually the evidence came out that he was indeed being inappropriate with women in the church and the leadership asked him to leave. See, even those who are standing in front of everybody else can fall victim to spiritual bulimia, a lot of data. I could kick data back out. But has it really been processed in my life? We can mistake Bible knowledge for spiritual obedience and hearing truth with true spirituality. Now, you know, we've been through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been doing a series of messages, right? And we could go back, and having heard that, the question is, how much of that have we implemented? And I just want to give you a couple of highlights. For example, in Matthew 5, 37, Jesus talks about the need for integrity and honesty in our life, especially in what we say. Well, how have we been doing I mean, do we make casual promises to our spouse or our kids or our friends and our parents, and then we don't follow through? That's not what Jesus was talking about. Do, when we have an opportunity to look good in front of people, do we kind of exaggerate the facts of the story or the event that happens so we look better? In Matthew 6.20, he talks about how we should be laying up treasures in heaven. Have we really processed that in our life? Did we take time to slow down and, and look at that and to ponder that? How am I investing for eternity? How am I using my funds? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, he talks about and warns us about being on a fault-finding campaign towards others where we pass very lightly over our own faults. You know, where are we on that? Do we have strong feelings about the sins of others? Man, it riles me up. But is that matched by a thorough and transparent self-exam of our own life? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. That's Jesus' final caution. Then we have the people's reaction in verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority. And not as their scribes. They were saying, this is not business as usual, you know, in the temple and in the synagogue. This is practical stuff. This is straightforward truth. This is life changing truth. So we have been hearing the Word of God today. The question is are we going to take time to look intently at it, you know, to to peer at it carefully and talk about what does this mean? for my life personally. Let me just give you some life response I would suggest that we can have coming out of this section today. Three things. Number one, remember. Number two, slow down. Number three, increase. We can all be doing these three things. What are they? Well, number one, remember the purpose of truth is to change our life. We need to remember that, men and women. When we pick this book up, The purpose of this book is to change our life. It's to affect our attitudes and our actions. It's a whole different way of thinking when we remember that. Second thing that we can do is to slow down a little to ponder and to meditate. And that's what happens to us in the culture. We hear a little bit of Bible, and then we run off, and we do this, and then we're doing that, and then we're taking kids there, and we're doing this, and we're doing that. And we don't slow down to, to ponder and to meditate. What does this really mean for me? And by the way, that's one of the reasons why we do sermon questions every week. You know, it's not just that Mark and I like busy work. Eh, let's just keep busy. Let's just, you know, blah, 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 blah. blah. No, it's there to help us to slow down a little and to ponder and to meditate the truth that we've been teaching. So you can do it individually, you can do it in your family, you can do it in a small group, but you can reflect a little more, talk a little bit more about what this might mean individually. Remember, the purpose of truth is to change our life, slow down a little to ponder and meditate. Number three, increase the words place through space. S-P-A-C-E. It's an acronym. This is the third thing we can do to increase the word's place in my life through space. It's just a little reminder that I've seen that that I really find helpful. For example, each letter means something. S stands for sins. You know, when I'm either reading the word of God or studying the word of God or hearing the word, I think of sins. Are there some sins mentioned here that may be present in my own life? Is there something I need to repent from, something I need to confess to God? The S is sins. The P stands for promises. As I'm hearing the word of God, are there some promises I'm to hold on to or to stand on in some way? The A stands for attitudes. As the word of God is coming into contact with me, is there some thinking of mine that needs to change? And then I'm asking the Spirit of God to help me cultivate that new attitude. Increase the Word's place through space. S is sins. P is promises. A is attitudes. C is commands. Is there something in this that's telling me that I need to do something? Is there something in this section of God's Word that is telling me I need to stop doing something? And then we do that as the Holy Spirit empowers us to do it. And then, so you have sins, you have promises, you have attitudes, you have commands. E stands for example. Is there an example for me to follow, something for me to emulate, or an example for me to not follow? Plenty of those in the Bible. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it is alive, it is powerful. It is designed to transform our thinking, transform our heart, transform our behavior. Protect us from the spiritual disorder of spiritual anorexia and spiritual bulimia, Lord, that we may be blessed in what we do as we seek to live out your word